Hello, I'm Mesa Jalbout, and you're listening to The Impact Room, a podcast hosted by me and produced by Philanthropy H. We had planned to kick off season four with some interviews about climate philanthropy ahead of the UAE hosting COP28, but we felt we could not ignore the humanitarian catastrophe unfolding in Gaza. In solidarity with the people of Palestine, we are recording some special episodes about the impact this latest war is having on innocent people to both highlight the current emergency, but also explore what role philanthropy can and should be playing to help those in need. At the time of recording this podcast, more than 11,000 Palestinians had been killed by the Israeli bombardment, which began on October 7th in retaliation to Hamas's attack on Israel. Of those, more than 4,500 are children, and a further 3,000 are women. According to the United Nations, more than 1.6 million people have been driven from their homes and forced to shelter in schools, hospitals, and warehouses. Gaza's healthcare system is teetering on the brink. Hospitals are fast running out of medicines and fuel, forcing doctors to perform surgeries without anesthetic, and babies are dying as incubators can no longer function. Water is in perilously short supply, posing a major risk of disease outbreak, and as winter bites, conditions will only worsen. Meanwhile, aid agencies are warning of growing rates of hunger among a population that has been severely food insecure for decades. Since the partial opening of the Rafah border crossing from Egypt on October 21st, some emergency relief has trickled in, but it is in no way near enough to support a population that has long been dependent on aid after two decades of an Israeli blockade. UN agencies reacted with collective horror tonight after two of its schools in Gaza became the latest targets in the war with children among dozens feared dead. Yesterday we went to the mosque to pray at sunset. We kneeled the first time and suddenly we found people all over the place. I was under a bunch of rocks and other people were under the rubble. The nightmare in Gaza is more than a humanitarian crisis. It is a crisis of humanity. No one is safe. Gaza is becoming a graveyard for children. Hundreds of girls and boys are reportedly being killed or injured every day. One man who is very familiar with the harsh realities of life in Gaza and the latest tragedy that is unfolding there at this moment is Steve Sosabi, the president of the Palestinian Children's Relief Fund. Steve set up the PCRF, as it's known for short, in 1991, after meeting a young Palestinian who'd lost both his legs and a hand in an Israeli bomb blast in Hebron. Moved by the boy's plight, Steve, who at the time was working in Palestine as a freelance journalist, fundraised for Mansour to be flown to the United States for treatment. Three decades later, the PCRF is a multinational NGO with chapters in 25 countries. It has raised more than $100 million to pay for 2,000 children to travel overseas for medical treatment and organized some 800 medical missions to operate on tens of thousands of youngsters in the West Bank, Gaza, Lebanon, and Jordan. Until October 7th, the PCRF was running Gaza's only pediatric cancer unit, which it had opened in 2019 after a four-years fundraising campaign. 
I spoke to Steve from his home in Kent, Ohio on November 14th and began by asking him how he was feeling. Well, I think all of us are feeling a combination of different emotions that vary from the extremes. There isn't really anything in between. I think everybody feels a certain sense of despair, depression, hopelessness. Uh, and then on the other side, we feel anger. We feel rage in some cases, um, extreme frustration. Um, and all of those combined can be at the same time and can fluctuate uh, throughout the day based on kind of what you're seeing and how you're digesting information and how you're dealing with the various realities of what's happening on the ground in Gaza and the human toll that it's taking, particularly on children, I think is leaving a pretty deep emotional scar in pretty much everybody who's connected and committed to this issue. Steve, thank you so much for sharing your feelings. Um, they definitely resonate with me and with many people I've been speaking with. We're speaking on November 14th, and I'm wondering if you can describe to us at this time, what are the biggest issues facing children in Gaza, and what are their most urgent medical needs? Well, the children in Gaza are going through an existential crisis in the sense that um, this wave of violence, which has come upon them since October 7th, and actually they've been exposed to it their entire lives. This is not uh, completely new to them. They've been through, uh, if you're a six or seven-year-old child in Gaza, you've seen many bombing campaigns. You've survived them destruction of property, the killing of neighbors or relatives or family members, the destruction of the infrastructure and the community around you. These are things that kids in Gaza have experienced their whole life. But since October 7th, the existential crisis of survival has been unlike we've ever seen before. Um, there's, let's say, 4,500 children who are dead. There's another 1,500 children who are missing and presumed buried under the thousands of destroyed homes and schools and churches and mosques and hospitals and shelters and cars and all over the Gaza Strip, uh, another 1,500 children who've not been identified or not been found. And out of those 6,000 children, we have only a population of 1 million kids. And they, they children and mothers make up 67% of all the deaths and the fatalities in the Gaza Strip, which is an astounding number. And I think what this indicates is that this is a war on Gaza's children. You, you can phrase it or claim it any other way you like, but the statistics and the numbers are quite clear. And, you know, it's easy to just say statistics when we talk about 6,000 dead children or 1,500 missing kids or whatever you want to say. The fact is every one of them has a name. Every one of them has uh, family members who love them. Every one of them had brothers and sisters who may or may not be survivors who are going to miss them. Every one of them has parents who may or may not have survived who also have broken hearts at the loss of their children. We have to make an effort as human beings to always remember that those children in Gaza also are human beings and deserve the respect of being acknowledged as individuals uh, and not just numbers and statistics. But when you get to the number 6,000, it's quite challenging to often remember that each one of them has a name and a family member who loves them. You have also nearly 10,000 critically injured children in Gaza who are going to need years of physical rehabilitation, surgeries. Um, you know, these are kids who are paralyzed the rest of their life, who are uh, amputees the rest of their life, or have long-term physical injuries now that are going to need medical care as well as social and psychological support for them to overcome. And that's a huge number considering the population of Gaza is, again, only one million children. In addition to that is the kids in Gaza who are not being injured physically, um, but are going without food, 
who are going without clean water and shelter and adequate clothing for the winter that is now descending on the Gaza Strip. The cold nights, the rainy days, the flooding of the streets, um, water treatment plants have shut down in Gaza, so there's human waste and sewage everywhere. Um, children are are sharing toilets with four or 500 other people. They're living in these very um, difficult uh, circumstances where their homes have been destroyed, many of them, and they're living in these UN shelters with hundreds and hundreds of other people, no privacy, no place to play. They're not going to school. They're missing their education. And then, of course, the traumatization of the entire population of children in Gaza, the long-term consequences of being exposed to violence and the impact that that's having on them currently for the short-term psychological uh, challenges of living in such fear and seeing firsthand and experiencing firsthand um, the destruction of their homes, of their institutions, of their seeing family members killed, or they themselves being injured, and and just that constant uh, sounding of bombings and fear that has gripped the entire community. The fact that they're just in this uh, constant state of whether they're going to survive the day or the night is producing this deep, deep trauma that may never be adequately treated and overcome because the source of the trauma will continue most likely the rest of their lives as it has already. Um, When you factor all of these equations, and there's many more, um, into just kind of an assessment as to what children in Gaza are going through right now, I think it's fair to say that this is a war on Gaza children. And whether it's the intentional war or what is the results of the war, nonetheless, they are the number one victims of this conflict, and they are the ones who we have to focus our efforts on healing and helping them to overcome this trauma and this terrible, terrible crisis to live better lives and to have opportunities in the future to to live and to be happy and to have lives of meaning and purpose that they currently are not going to have. Steve, thank you so much for that overview. It's absolutely heartbreaking. What do you think needs to be done now to deal with the impact of this war on uh, Palestinians' mental health, especially children? I mean, obviously, first, the violence has to stop. I mean, it's really hard to have any positive impact in dealing with the trauma and the anxiety and the stress and the mental health challenges that have come up over, you know, the last month plus, or even, you know, the entire lives of these children, their exposure to violence didn't start on October 7th. But last May, there was an 11-day bombing campaign on Gaza in which over 100 children were killed. And it's just been an ongoing, continuous exposure for every child and the entire population of Gaza. Every single person who's lived there has, has been different levels of exposure to violence. And a lot of these kids, you know, they developed also in an environment where the elders around them have themselves been traumatized and they feed off of that. That influences them as well. How do we deal with that? It's, this is a huge question. I don't know if there's anyone in the world who has an answer as to how one can go about and adequately treat uh, an entire population of one million children who are suffering from ongoing traumatization, abuse, and violence, and how to adequately treat that. I, I don't know if that's even possible. What I think we can do is try to come in and provide these kids better quality of life, give them opportunities to remain children and to have childlike experiences in their lives, giving them opportunities to play, to go to school, to have resources that enable them to live the life of a child safely and innocently. But I fear that's just a drop in the bucket of what these kids actually need. And um, this is actually the saddest part of this whole issue in Gaza. And it beyond the loss of human life, which is 
tragic and cannot be, um, you cannot ever heal the wounds of a mother or parents uh, or siblings who have lost a family member. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. And I'm conscious of the fact that there will be many listeners hearing you talk about this and wondering how they can help. Yeah, I think we have to be creative and come up with solutions using all the resources that are available in the diaspora community or within the communities abroad of people who want to play a role in rebuilding Gaza and play a role in rebuilding the lives of children there in particular. Um, We need to tap into all of the resources that are available, professional and so on, and identify ways that we can apply what they have learned or what they have available to having a positive impact on the ground. I think there needs to be some brainstorming and strategizing with these organizations on a, individually and collectively to really identify what would work and what wouldn't work, taking into consideration that, again, this is not post-traumatic stress that we're dealing with. These are not kids who are recovering from trauma. These are kids who are undergoing ongoing trauma. And therefore, whatever interventions we have to apply have to take that into consideration. And I think that requires you know, a lot of discussion and review of what would be applicable and what would be effective with different organizations and individuals who could provide their insight and their experiences in places like Syria and Iraq and see what works and what doesn't work and what is available and what we can apply on the ground. Can you give our listeners a sense of how PCRF's work and investment in Gaza has been impacted by this war. For example, I understand several children you've previously operated on uh, have been killed. Can you just give us a a sense of how much of your work has been impacted and and the people that you work with? Our work has been completely impacted in the sense that we had a lot of different programs and projects on the ground which are either halted or uh, destroyed. We've tragically lost the lives of children that we've sent abroad for treatment. We had two children who'd gone to the U.S. seven or eight years ago for reconstructive surgery who who were killed a few days ago in Han Yunus. Their home was bombed. It's very sad. And then we have also a boy in our amputee program who was killed with his family on one of the roads heading south trying to flee to so-called safe areas, which really there are no safe areas in Gaza. So there we have lost actual human life of kids that we've treated or in our existing ongoing programs there. And this includes also patients in our cancer departments who've been killed or injured, you know, kids who've been treated by our uh, internally inside of Gaza. Um, how we've been impacted. So our cancer department, which was the main jewel of positive healing in Gaza, was shut down. We don't know when that will reopen. We don't know what will happen to that institution and whether it will even be a viable entity in the future for treating children and whether we have to rebuild again a brand new pediatric oncology department or not. Um, So that stopped. Um, The missions, we're the main organization in the world that brings volunteer medical teams into Gaza to provide free care and training for local doctors and nurses. That stopped due to the restriction of borders, although we do have teams ready to go. Um, We had several projects with infrastructure in hospitals. We just completed the rebuilding of the operating theaters in the Indonesian hospital, four brand new operating theaters, uh, which are not functioning now. The hospital's closed. In Shifa Hospital, we were rebuilding a brand new transplant program in the Shifa Hospital for developing health services there to enable children who need kidney transplants or other organ transplants to get treatment locally. That has stopped. In Al-Aqsa Hospital in Dirabala, we were rebuilding the operating theaters there. Um, that has stopped. In Han Yunus, we were building a brand new catheterization lab in the main uh, European Gaza Hospital, and that has stopped. 
Um, in addition, we were supporting the training of local doctors. What we had been doing over the last couple of years were doing needs assessments in hospitals and in different medical specialties in Gaza, in neonatal care, in pediatric intensive care, in general intensive care, in neurosurgery, in cardiac surgery, and so on and so forth. We had teams going there to really identify ways that we could build programs locally to develop a more sustainable health system and also improve patient care. All of that has stopped. Um, so therefore, you know, we're truly, truly impacted because our role was really long-term development of the health sector and to improve the overall care of patients, particularly children in Gaza. And obviously uh, during this crisis, uh, all of those efforts have been put on hold and we're not sure even if they'll be able to be resumed in the future. You know, um, PCRF has you know, received funding uh, for a long time from, from this region and beyond, from individuals and governments. A fundraising appeal you launched has raised more than $36 million. What, what is your goal, um, and, and how do you want to spend that money very specifically? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And, you know, the community has responded and been very generous with the relief funds coming in to support um, Gaza. Now the question is, how do we use that money? That's what really is the most important, in my opinion, responsibility that we have on our shoulders. We have to be completely uh, effective and impactful and transparent with how those funds are used. I mean, you can raise a billion dollars. It's not going to be enough to rebuild Gaza, but that's not what we're trying to accomplish as an organization. We're not coming in to rebuild buildings beyond the health sector, perhaps. Um, But that doesn't mean that those funds, you know, that's a huge amount and it can have a very significant impact, not only in the short term, but on the long term. But right now, these funds are for the short term. So we need to make sure that we utilize those effectively. As I mentioned before, we are currently purchasing. We've put together a strategic list of medical supplies and medical equipment that's absolutely needed on the ground based on our assessments and the input that we've gotten from doctors all over Gaza based on what their needs are. And we're purchasing those items by the millions of dollars and we'll continue to do so as long as there is a need for it. Um, The problem again is having access and getting it inside. Um, And then the other aspect is the expansion and how we're going to use those funds is expanding programs. As I mentioned earlier, we need to expand our amputee program, our orphan sponsorship program, our mental health program. We need to rebuild our cancer department and see what kind of damage has been done to that. We need to continue to support and repair the hospitals, especially in areas that are affecting children's lives and children's health, surgical care and medical care and neonatal units and pediatric intensive care units and so on. Those all need to be rebuilt. The machine and equipments probably need to be refurbished or uh, replaced. That's millions of dollars. Uh, In addition, we need new programs. And the first thing I'm planning to do as soon as the border opens is to go there on the ground and do a comprehensive assessment as to what what is needed and what is also what we can do as an organization, not only uh, using the money, which is obviously when you have that kind of, those kind of resources, you have the opportunity to have a significant impact, but also to bring forth new programs and projects that can meet the needs of the children on the ground. And whether it's, again, the fundamental existential needs of survival, which was what they're going through right now, but also the long-term healing that needs to take place for these children in Gaza. And that's really the bigger challenge. So, you know, we we are very grateful. A lot of organizations have been, you know, have had the great response and support from donors. But it's most important is that we need to demonstrate to you that your money is going to be used in the most effective way. We can't spend it right this second. And nobody can simply because the borders are closed and there are restrictions on aid coming in. 
even if you wanted to rebuild, it's impossible to do so simply because there's no fuel, there's no economy at all, there's no companies that are working. It's just a complete, absolute crisis. Um, so we need to make sure that when we, we are able to spend our money, we do it in a quick and effective way and that we are addressing the urgent needs, but also the needs of children for um, healing over a course of time or a period of time. And that needs to be conveyed to you as donors so you feel confident that your funds are being used in the most effective and efficient way. Steve, I hear you emphasizing efficiency, uh, effectiveness, accountability. I'm wondering if this is because a lot of foundations and philanthropists, especially uh, those from the West, continue to be reluctant to get involved in, in Gaza. What role do you want to see those foundations play and what would your message be to them today? I think there's two messages here for donors or foundations. Um, one is that we have a responsibility. You can't just look at this crisis and act like you're not responsible, particularly those in the West, particularly American foundations, but also European. And it's the responsibility of foundations not to turn a blind eye because of the politics or because it is such a controversial issue, I guess, with air quotes, because that's the way it's been portrayed. Um, so it is the moral and ethical responsibility of donors and foundations and um, development organizations and agencies to not look at Gaza as something that's too controversial or too difficult or too risky for them to be a part of. And that comes with a responsibility then to provide the basic aid at the very least and the long-term development of a health sector or education system or social support for children there, in particular, the innocent victims of this conflict. And secondly, we understand that money can be either misused for nefarious purposes or there is an element of corruption that's always been involved in developing countries in which organizations or individuals misuse or abuse the resources that are coming in. And I think it's up to foundations and donors to also ensure that they hold the organizations that they're giving money to, to a high level of standard of transparency and accountability. Um, but it's also up to donors to not just turn away and say, well, everybody there is corrupt. Everybody's political. Everybody has a connection to some political party or some has some intention outside of strictly development or humanitarian aid. And that's not the case. Um, you know, it is obviously a very political issue, the whole issue of Gaza and Palestine, because everything there is political. Water is political. Food's political. Education is political. Healthcare is political. That's just the way the issue has evolved. And as a result, it's easy for donors to turn away and say this is too risky for us. But I think that that's the easy way out. There are organizations doing incredibly good work there. There are organizations that are operating by international standards that would ensure a level of transparency and accountability that maybe in the past was wasn't always available in some of these areas of the world. And it's up to donors to not just, you know, kind of wash their hands of any responsibility, but to look for those organizations and to feel that there is potential on the ground who can make a difference and so who are making a difference and to engage those organizations and to give them the resources they need to do their work. Thank you. I mean, you covered a lot of ground there and I can hear the um, frustration in your voice and the sadness, but also uh, a very strong resolve on behalf of the children of Gaza. Steve, thank you so much for joining me on The Impact Room. You're welcome. That was Steve Sosabi, the founder of the Palestinian Children's Relief Fund, speaking to me in an interview recorded on November 14th, 2023. I'm Maisa Jalbout, and you've been listening to The Impact Room, a podcast produced by Philanthropy Age. This was a special episode in solidarity with the people of Palestine, 
Search for The Impact Room wherever you get your podcasts to find all our other episodes. Until next time. Thank <laughs> you.